This is Amanda Edwards, and I'd like to welcome you to the Edwards Empowerment Talks. This podcast provides a platform to empower individuals and the community by showcasing stories of resilient people who have refused to let life's challenges prevent them from achieving their dreams. The Edwards Empowerment Talks will also highlight the work being done in the community that will help to positively shift the trajectory of this nation through stories of adversity, perseverance, drive, struggle, and success, the podcast will empower others to believe in their dreams and pursue those dreams despite whatever challenges may come their way. It is also a vehicle to equip the community with the tools necessary to be the change they want to see. I welcome you to tune in. You don't want to miss this. Okay, everyone, I want to welcome you to a very special edition of the Edwards Empowerment Talks. As you know, we like to introduce our members and our viewers and our listeners to stories of perseverance, people who have defied the odds with both their personal stories as well as with their work. And my next guest, my next guest is a very special guest who has happened to do both. He's used his personal life journey as well as his work in the community, not only to defy the odds, but to truly make an impact on the community for all of us to benefit from. I'm very excited to introduce and welcome to the Edwards Empowerment Talks podcast, our very own Beto O'Rourke, more affectionately known as Beto. Beto, welcome to the show. I'm so excited that you're here. Amanda, I'm, I'm so glad to be with you and so encouraged that you are doing this show and that you invited me and I'm very much looking forward to the conversation. Absolutely. And before we get started, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I just have to publicly thank you for the inspiration you have been to so many of us. And I say of us people, young people, people all across the state of Texas, people all across the nation who oftentimes feel discouraged by the status quo. And what you were able to do was have vision and show us that the status quo does not have to be that. And we can be the change that we want to see in our communities. And so I want to thank you for personally inspiring me and also putting the work behind that and really laying the foundation for change uh, across such a wide spectrum uh, of places and spaces. So thank you uh, for your work. So I don't have to go into your background like I do most of the time in my podcast. We start talking about people's childhood. We're going to skip over. <laughs> We're going to skip over some of that for, for now. But I do want to, of course, talk about the 2020 election cycle. And I want to talk about the work that you're doing now. But um, before doing that, I really want to go back to 2018 and the legendary, I'm going to call it legendary race that you ran in which you came within 215,000 votes of winning the state of Texas U.S. Senate seat in a time when nobody, and I repeat, nobody thought that was possible. I want to go back to that. And can you share with me your inspiration behind your 2018 U.S. Senate run? Well, it really began in, in 2016. Mm-hmm. I, I was then a member of Congress. I had on the night of that November election, 2016, just one re-election to um, what would be my, my third term in, in Congress representing the 16th Congressional District, which essentially encompasses El Paso County out here in West Texas. 
And we had had some of uh, my team over, some of my campaign team and some of my congressional staff over to the house, my wife, Amy, and I, and our team and our kids. And we all just ate pizza and, and watched the returns. And it was very clear that Hillary Clinton was going to win. And so at about 830 uh, or even earlier, I said, hey, folks, you know, we're going to get the kids ready to bed, uh, ready for bed. And we're going to head up. So um, let's let's wrap up here. And folks went home and we took the kids up, put them to sleep. And Amy and I had a little TV in our room and we were watching the returns. And it, it suddenly took a turn that I in no way Amanda expected, which, <laughs> no. which, Most which of is us. probably true for, for a lot of the country. Right. Uh and I, I watched with a, a mixture of disbelief and horror and, and deep, profound sadness for my country, for our kids, for the future of America, and for any hope that, um, that we were going to ultimately get to the promise that we laid out, you know, 240 years before. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, I, and I started wondering, what am I going to tell my kids? Um, what am I going to tell myself? I mean, how is it that this guy who's described Mexicans and, and immigrants from Mexico as rapists and criminals and who wants to build a wall and wants to do all these things that are antithetical to everything that I believe in and see in my country? How, how did this happen? And, you know, I think, you know, Amy and I at that point had been married for 11 years. And so by this point, you're brainwaves start to (laughs) sink and you're in tune with each other. And I think we really both had the same thought at the same time, which is at at some point down the road, there will be an accounting for what we did Mm -hmm. or what we failed to do at this moment, where it was becoming clear that the future of our country was, was at stake. And we, we almost, I think simultaneously came to the conclusion that we should think about running for U.S. Senate, literally as the returns are, are still coming. So in. not before that. So it wasn't like you were sitting in your your U.S. Uh, congressional office saying, I'm going to I'm going to an office over there on the Senate side. You weren't plotting this. This was something that came to you in direct response uh, to the 2016 election. That that thought crosses the the mind of of every member of Congress, you mm-hmm. know, every member of the House. Could could I run for Senate or should I run for another, quote unquote, higher office? But that thought was easily dismissed when it came up before because I felt very happy in in the position of public trust that I had been elected to. Um, I was still you know trying to do better in that job and had a had a long road to go. Mm-hmm. But but there was something about the urgency of, of the moment mm-hmm. in the wake of that election that completely changed our course. And um, and, and, you know, it made no logical sense. There, there was nothing rational about running against a, um, you know, an incumbent Republican senator in a state that had last elected a Democrat to the Senate in 1988, and somebody who had been the runner-up for the Republican presidential nomination. And Ted Cruz's stock was was at an all-time high. Mm-hmm. But I, I I felt it was more of a Amanda, to be honest with you, it was more of an emotional mm-hmm. impulse. It was one of you know found in the heart and and less in the head. Yeah. And and so that that really uh, was the impetus for the for the run. And I didn't 
I didn't declare my candidacy formally until March of 2017. And I didn't really know beyond the shadow of a doubt that I was running until maybe, you know, February or January of 2017. But that's, that's really where it started. Absolutely. And with that race, you were able to not only just come close, and I mean, very, very close within 215,000 votes in a state with 29 million people. That's a lot. That's very close. But then you laid the foundation for people to believe that Texas could flip. And of course, we all remember and of course applaud you for your U.S. presidential run um, in, in terms of just what you stood for, the courage that you had and led with. And of course, it was a very crowded field. But after you concluded that bid, you didn't just go home and go on vacation, right? You you got to work in different ways, which I think was really inspiring in order to help set the framework, set the stage for other leaders to have a platform to run in 2020, for other leaders also to be able to affect change in their community. So you were using your pack called Powered by People to do things like get volunteers into the food bank during when the pandemic uh, first began, uh, to do things like raise millions of dollars for other candidates, and then of course to do what you do best in terms of galvanizing and mobilizing and inspiring people to get behind efforts that will change the face of our democracy. And so you were texting, you were calling, and typically what you were traditionally used to doing was going door to door, but that you know, got impacted your work, that aspect of your work got impacted by the pandemic. So just wanted to hear a little bit from you about why did you take that route? Why, why not go back into the private sector uh, quietly or why not lay, lay back and wait and run again? Why did you decide I'm going to get to work, literally roll up my sleeves and not stop until uh, they, I have to? You know, it, it was, it's interesting. That, that you ask these questions back to back because um, the decision to engage in Texas and help at the state house level um, really was born of a conversation again with Amy. And, and this was on the eve of my withdrawal from the presidential nomination contest. Mm -hmm. And I remember I was in a, um, I believe I was in Kansas City on my way to Des Moines and our flights had gotten rerouted and changed and we were not in the city we were supposed to be and staying in this little motel and realized that at that moment it would not be possible to, to go on. And I called Amy to share the news with her. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, I, I really hope that we are never in any way involved in public life or in politics again, because We've, we've given the last three years of our life, 2017, mm -hmm. 2018, 2019, mm -hmm. we gave six years in Congress. Um, we've served in the El Paso City Council. Kudos and, to you know, City we, Council. <laughs> that's right. That's how I knew you were going to be good. You, you came up through City Council. There you go. Um, but, you know, we we had, I felt like we'd, we'd done our part. Of course, I was, you know, I was beaten up and, and yeah. beaten down and, you know, not, not a little bit embarrassed and ashamed that, that we did not make it further given the promise with which we started. And so mm -hmm. for all those reasons, I wanted to, 
you know, crawl into a cave and, and, uh, and just withdraw completely. And, you know, what Amy said was all the reasons that we gave each other for running in, for Senate back when we first thought about in 2016 mm -hmm. and for running for president in 2019, all, all of those things that we were running for and all the challenges that seemed so urgent then are only more dire at this moment. And so, you know, you may not be a candidate, you may not have a campaign, um, but but you have some ability to do some good. And so let's figure out what the hell that is. And so we we really put some thought into it. We, we did what I know you two have done in, in your campaign, uh, both before and after, which is, I just, I started calling people around the state and I said, tell me, tell me where you think I can be helpful. Can you, can you put me to use somewhere? Mm -hmm. And what I kept hearing from people is that the state house, the state legislature, which determines the political boundaries that define the, the districts that people run in and for that have been so gerrymandered and, and racially gerrymandered at that to cynically and unconstitutionally and, and in a very racist way, mm -hmm. uh, preserve a, a Republican advantage in what might even be Republican minority rule. Because in, in 2018, as you alluded to, not only did we win more votes than any Democrat before then and, and became the first Democrat since LBJ in 64 to win the, the counties in and around the four major metro areas, mm -hmm. but we won more state house districts than did Ted Cruz. So we, we won a majority of the state house districts. So we, we knew our voters were there mm -hmm. and we knew that they had been gerrymandered, suppressed and intimidated mm -hmm. into preserving an unnatural majority for, for Republicans. And so I just, I felt like given the fact that 2020 would decide who sits at the table in 2021 when these jurisdictions are redrawn and, and new congressional districts are drawn in following the census, this, this is where the, the greatest need was. And perhaps given our ability to mobilize volunteers to do direct voter engagement and, and voter registration work, that maybe this is, this is the, the place for me to be. And so after, after making that decision, for me, it, it became a very clear path forward of just reaching out to folks who wanted to do the work. And that's for the better part of the last year, Amanda, all, all the way through 7.01 p.m. Mountain Standard Time, uh, Tuesday night, Tuesday, November 3rd, that's, that's what I have been doing. Mm -hmm. And it has been, it's so interesting to me, it has been among the most fulfilling things I've ever been a part of, mm -hmm. even though, and maybe because of the fact that I was no longer a candidate and, and mm -hmm. it wasn't my campaign. I was just literally a volunteer. I never got paid. Uh, to do any of the work. And, and I did it because like so many other thousands of volunteers, I, I love doing the work and I'm grateful to have the chance to help others. And so that's, that's how we came to that decision. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that another reason why I, I, ha I had to have you on is because this is all about empowerment. And sometimes when you when you think about empowerment, it's about investing not just in yourself and not just in your own vision for yourself, but it's also about investing in others and building upon your your vision or your why. Like my favorite book uh, is by Simon Sinek, or one of my favorite books is it starts with why, and it talks about your motivation and and how that motivation can if you're really going to be a strong leader 
and, and mobilize and galvanize, you've got us, people have got to see themselves in your why and the work mm. that you do have to, has to reflect their, them as well. And I think what you've done is an embodiment of that in terms of making sure that you don't just lift yourself, you are lifting the, the entirety of, of the community with the platform you've been able to amass because of the community, which I think a lot of the times we take these platforms and then we say, that's my platform, let me go use it for me at some other juncture, as opposed to saying, this is the community's platform and I just happen to be the conduit or, or the messenger for this this broader movement that's bigger than me. And so I think that's really, really important. Now, you talked a lot about kind of the goals that you guys set forth in terms of flipping the house. That did not happen this cycle. What do you think was some of the reason for that in terms of, I know it's fresh, it's, it did not happen very long ago, but is there some sense as to what happened? And then of course, always looking forward, what can be done the next time in terms of the state the state legislature but then beyond that we've got you know some success at the top of the ticket but there are some other spaces and places where there's there's room to grow so i'm curious to hear what you think happened but then kind of channel that into what do you think needs to happen next yeah it's it's a it's a question that i am working through right now as you mentioned this is this is so fresh, it literally just happened. And it is really, quite frankly, Amanda, it's, it's very surprising to me because mm -hmm. not only did- Not just you, a lot of us. <laughs> on, on, both, on both sides of yeah. the aisle, because not only did public polling reflect the opportunity to win a number of these state house seats, and including perhaps enough to constitute a new democratic majority. And not only did the, the democratic candidates internal polling show that to be the case, but from talking with Republicans, you know, they felt as though it was going to be competitive. They felt as though they were going to win or retain the majority, but they felt as though their majority was going to be cut down significantly, maybe a majority of one or two seats. And for them to essentially preserve the status quo antebellum, you know, they, nine seats, because we picked up a seat, uh, they lost a seat. I'm sorry, we picked up a seat and we lost a seat mm -hmm. that we had won in, in 2018. There, there's one, there's a caveat, there's one seat in North Texas that I think there's still a count going on and All we right. may or may not pick that up. But we came, mm -hmm. to, to your point, Amanda, we came nowhere close to the nine that we set out to win. And that is despite over 200,000 voter registrations, successful mm -hmm. voter registrations that targeted likely Democratic voters and you were also targeting them. also african-american voters in the state of uh, in the state of uh, texas as well because i remember uh when you launched those efforts in concert with one of our um statewide uh african-american organizations carol robinson and the coalition of, of black democrats the texas democratic party um you know clip walker and 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 uh and his entire team um the coalition, their entire team, powered by people, our team, and then uh, just a ton of volunteers uh, called and or texted every single one of the registered Black voters in the state of Texas, more than 1.5 million. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then just powered by people over the course of the year, you know, we made over 70 million voter contact attempts. So on top of the registration, on top of 
the targeted outreach to black voters and then working with Veronica Escobar, who's the Congresswoman for the 16th Congressional District now, mm-hmm. we called for, for the better part of two weeks, all of the US-Mexico border counties in Texas. Mm-hmm. And, and we called with, with phone bank volunteers who could speak Spanish as well as English to listen to those voters as well. Mm-hmm. Despite all, the, all that effort, um, we came up short. And, and so here are a couple of things that, mm-hmm. that are beginning to, um, you know, take form as I, as I look for an answer. One is, you know, we picked up 12 seats in 2018. Mm-hmm. And, and by definition, each of those seats had been held by a Republican before. And, and those were brand new Democratic members who had to now defend their seats. And all of them, uh, except for one, was successful in doing so. So there was a lot of effort and resources spent on just preserving the gains we picked up in 2018. And by definition, those nine seats that we didn't pick up in 2018, even though I won a majority in those districts over Ted Cruz, mm-hmm. you know, by definition, those were going to be a little bit harder because we didn't win them before when we had, you know, a really strong top of the ticket. And, and now we had a, a different dynamic. And so it was going to be a little bit harder. Um, but, but here's where I come down to, Amanda. You know, in 2018, mm-hmm. the U.S. Senate candidate was the top of the ticket. In 2020, it is the presidential, the presidential. and perhaps more than in any cycle that I can remember, the presidential election overwhelmed and subsumed every race down ballot from it, whether you were running for U.S. Senate or county commission. Tell me about it. And it <laughs> yes, yes. And, and there were there were some county commissioner seats that we lost, like, you know, Democrats who'd held a county commissioner seat for 20 plus years who got replaced by a Republican that no one had ever heard of because mm-hmm. the the overwhelming support for Donald Trump amongst his partisans who, who were out there to defend their guy, who they saw being unreasonably attacked and maligned. And, and there was a real rallying cry mm-hmm. that, that they responded to. And I think that it, when you have that and then you don't have our top of the ticket, mm-hmm. Joe Biden spending any money or mm-hmm. really any time. And I, and I don't say that to criticize. Yeah. It looks like they have won this presidential election, thank God. And, and they had a strategy that they had to pursue. And, and it, perhaps this was the path for him to be the president and end the national nightmare with Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. But that path did not pass through Texas. I and, think, and it I hurt think, us. I think the challenge with our state that I believe that people don't want to believe that Texas can can flip you know it's like but that's Texas and so we just have this like hardwired schema of what Texas's limitations are and possibilities are and until we show it ourselves it's it's going to be one of those things where we have to you know we can show you better than we can tell you because otherwise it's just going to be the cycle of it's so expensive to invest in Texas. We can flip three other states or four other states or five other states for the expense that it would, would cost us to invest the the resources that we need. And we don't need a tremendous amount. We're getting there. We're very close. We, I mean- Look, look what we did yes. with, with nothing. So Florida, Florida, Amanda, got between Biden and Bloomberg, the, the 100 million Bloomberg kicked in. That, that total expenditure there 
was at a minimum a quarter of a billion dollars. Wow. You know, Texas was was much closer to, to zero than, than it was wow. to a quarter of a billion dollars. Yeah. And they're still counting the votes in Texas. And what we thought was a six point deficit is now moving down perhaps closer to five. Mm -hmm. um, in Florida, it was a three point deficit. So, you know, give us maybe just, half of that quarter just a of a billion little dollars, bit. spend it in Texas, just a little bit <laughs> and, and, and watch, watch us go. So, you know, I think that's part of it, but I, I, I really, really like what you just said, which is, you know, we, we can't prove it to anyone outside of Texas until we've proven it to ourselves. And it's not something that we can say, it, it has to be something we show. And I think that's, that's the work that we have in front of us for 2022 mm -hmm. and 2024 and every cycle thereafter, because you really, at this point, if you're a Democrat in Texas, you have one of two alternatives, give up or go forward. And I think the only way I like that. out of our predicament is through. Yeah. Uh, the only way out is through. And, and I, for one, want to be part of, of the team that, that wants to get us through in whatever capacity. Listen, you know, you're going to be part. Of it. Are you giving me the exclusive on what you will be <laughs> in terms of the 2022 lineup? Is this an exclusive? Or am I going to have to say you heard it here first? <laughs> I, I, I wish, I wish I had some <laughs> news to give you. If there's anywhere I'd want to break, it would be here with you. But no, I, I, I think like you and like a lot of people right now, I, I think there's some humility involved in trying to understand what has just happened. Yeah. And, you know, no, no one has a better answer than, than the Texas voter. And I, I really want to, and probably as you have been doing, I have been calling all around the state, you know, from the Rio Grande Valley and Laredo to, uh, to Houston, to North Texas, to East Texas, back close to where I am in West Texas. And, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of really, really interesting feedback about what was on the minds of, of voters in, in this state and what some of the dynamics were. And as you suggested earlier, what some of the missing infrastructure might be mm -hmm. that has made it more of a challenge than, than we thought it was going to be going into this. So and, I think there's some work to do. And the question of what is, you know, is this issue with polling, is this tied to Donald Trump? Or is this is this something that we need to continue to think about? Or is this just a phenomenon where just don't even look at the polls? We need to go back to your mantra from the 18th cycle about polling and, and just, you know, do we need to and I'm, I'm somewhat being facetious, but not entirely. But do we need to think about our over reliance on that sort of thing in terms of us getting a sense of where we are. And, and that's another question that I think we thought we had corrected for after 16. And, you know, you talk to a pollster and they'll tell you, oh, yeah, we've corrected for the way we model things or our samples are different. And it's like, OK, guys, I didn't see this election cycle coming at all. So what happened? Because our polls didn't tell us that. What do we what do, you know, what lessons are there to learn from there, too? So I don't know. Do you have thoughts there? I do. And I, and I think I think you are right. And I think that um, there, there's an over-reliance on polls by by everyone. And, and it's a real it's a real turnoff to maybe all of us. And not just because the polls got it wrong, but because the polls seem to dictate so much in terms of the language that we use, the policies that we pursue. And, you know, present company excluded. I, I don't think you do that. I know that I don't do that. But I do think 
that that candidates do that oh, on yeah. both sides of the aisle, by the mm-hmm. way. And it, it, it is so programmed and so focus group driven and, and so safe as to almost become sterile and, and just completely not not human and, and not um, not engaging. And um, and it doesn't inspire you and it doesn't move you because you, you can tell that's not the person speaking from their heart. It's the person who is speaking within the confines of what the pollster said you can talk about and hear the words it's using, but don't use these other words. And I think when, when it's really exciting, mm-hmm. and I think there's something, frankly, I'll, I'll give you two politicians, one of whom I greatly admire and one whom one of whom I absolutely detest, Bernie Sanders and, and, and Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Neither of them speaks, at least from my ears, from, from a, a script or no, no, no one cooked up their their policy platform or the things that come out of their mouths yeah. that what bernie sanders believes in and says and the way that that a man in, in his in his mid-70s can engage 17 18 and 19 year olds by the millions it's because it's the truth mm-hmm. and and it comes from his heart and it, and it reaches our hearts donald trump is also doing something similar but if you were to compare it to to star wars he, he's on the dark side. They're both using the force. And, and Bernie Sanders is, is akin to a Jedi. Um, you know, you know, Donald Trump is, is, is something more akin to a, to a, uh, you know, a Sith Lord who, who is also able to use the, the force of a purely, you know, pursuing what is coming out of, I don't know where in him, if it's as hard or if it's something else, but, but obviously to very dark ends, using incredibly malicious means and and just wrapped up in in the hatred and racism that that we now all know to expect from him but both have been extraordinarily effective extraordinarily effective because they've busted through the confines of of safe you know tried and tested political discourse to Mm -hmm. say what they really feel and so you know i think the question you're asking amanda is gets at the heart of the races that people should be running in 2022. And I do think, you know, if we're just to take this Star Wars metaphor one step further, you know, there's this moment where where Luke has this helmet on that it's gonna help him, you know, learn how to use this lightsaber and deflect the laser beams that are coming in. And then he's, he's told, I think by Obi-Wan Kenobi or the ghost thereof to just close his eyes and use the force. And I think, you know, when you, as a candidate, when I saw you, running for city council and serving on city council, when I saw you at your best in the Senate race, that's what you were doing. You, you were just connecting with people. You were being yourself mm-hmm. and you have such an, an engaging magnetic personality and you are so genuinely curious about other people. And we all felt that. When, when you see someone who's just rehearsing the lines that they have been given, mm-hmm. you don't feel anything really. Um, it may check a box for you, but it, it doesn't really get you. So. I do think the answer to your question is yes, let's ignore the polls going forward. One, yeah. because their accuracy is is at a minimum debatable after you know two presidential cycles in a row, row of getting it wrong. And then two, I don't know that that's the essence of democracy and, and mm-hmm. what is exciting about being in public life. And so I, I think you've asked the question of the hour and I think we'll see whether people answer that one correctly, beginning with these 2022 races. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Well, I'll close with one last question. Um, since you won't answer my question on of where you'll be on the 2022 ticket statewide, um, hopefully we'll see, but we won't go there. I'll, we'll, we'll do a part two. How about that? And you can tell me I, that. I like that. I like that. <laughs> but um, advice. What I love to do with this podcast is make sure that people can relate this to their lives. And, and, and while we're talking about campaign and, and campaigning and elections and, and, and civic engagement, obviously people can relate uh, to these things to their lives. And so there are a number of people who are feeling disappointed uh, discouraged. They're feeling like I put all of this energy into it and I don't feel in return the way I would have hoped. What, what message do you have for them in terms of, you know, the, the road to victory, so to speak, uh, the proverbial road to victory being rocky sometimes. And sometimes there being valleys that we have to, uh, traverse through in order to really see uh, see our way through to the other side. Tell, share with us what do you think people need to hear, but then also how can they directly get involved once they've kind of processed this? Because everybody's got to process stuff. You know, I remember when I lost, you know, I needed to process for, <laughs> for a moment, you know. You got to take a moment to process, but then, okay, we don't just stay in process mode. We gotta, we've got to get back in action mode because we're fighters. How do you... Uh, how how would you encourage people um, in terms of any disappointment they they might be feeling right now? It it's such a personal question because I I have asked that of myself in in really tough times. So I mentioned you know some of what was so difficult about leaving that that presidential nomination race and how bad I felt mm -hmm. you know about myself and about what, what the way in which I had run that campaign and what I knew I was capable of and how, how uh, far short of that I, I felt. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's, some of that is, is necessary, you know, self-reflection. Some of that is completely understandable after uh, a loss. Some of it, you know, can get too close to, to being self-pitying. What, what helped me was that conversation that I, I uh, told you that I had with my wife, Amy, mm -hmm. and, and her kind of, you know, kind of a loving kick in the ass of, you know, you know what, <laughs> I, I know, I know this stings and I know this is, this is tough, but, you know, let's, let's remember we, we've got a job to do. Yeah. And, and it's, 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 you know, she said this in, in, a, in a way that you can only tell your spouse, but she said, you know, this, this is not about you. And, and this, this is about, all of us doing whatever we can at, at this moment. And that really stayed with me and, and really inspired me and really kept me from, from going too, too deep, you know, mm -hmm. inside instead of kind of trying to, trying to move forward and connect mm -hmm. with others who might need the help. But over the course of this year, that, that um, resolve to, to do that has really been tried. I mean, I remember in the days after George Floyd was killed, Mm -hmm. I, you know, certainly all, all of us were, were angered and saddened by that, mm -hmm. but my despair just got so deep and, and I got so low and I, I really, to be honest with you, and I, I even hate to say this out loud, but I, I just kind of wondered whether we were going to make it ever as a country. I just, yeah. if, if we cannot, if, if we are doing this, 
right a now. A public execution where you literally watch the life be snuffed out of somebody by the law enforcement officer who is taking an oath to protect and serve by him kneeling callously with his hands on his pocket on the man's on his man's neck. I mean, I don't think it was just horrific to watch. And, and we all and watched it. We all, we all watched it. And I think perhaps what, what, what made it even harder for so many was that that police officer knew he was being filmed and he looked right into the eye of the camera. Mm-hmm. So that he was looking into our eyes as if to say, I can do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there's no, I, there's nothing for me to be ashamed or embarrassed of nothing for me to hide. Mm-mm. This is America. I'm white. He's black. I'm a cop. He's not. And, and it was as simple as that. That was the expression mm-hmm. that I read in, in his eyes as he looked at all of us while he killed, while he murdered somebody. And, and you're right. It was a public execution. And it, it just, I, I couldn't, I couldn't find my way forward. And I, and I couldn't, I, I had a hard time believing in us in, in this country. And again, I, I, it's, it's almost hard for me to admit that publicly because of course we believe in America. We wouldn't be doing this stuff. And, you know, we should never, we should never fail our, our fellow countrywomen and men. But at that point, I just, I, I just didn't, I didn't know that we, we could ever. Mm-hmm. And that, that uh, later that day, uh, I was on a phone bank that Powered by People had organized and we were calling into these state representative districts. And, um, and those are hard calls, as you know, because mm-hmm. you've made them, but you're, you're calling complete strangers who, you know, may be eating dinner or maybe doing something else in their lives. Just may not want to hear. Just not waiting for your call. (laughs) That's, that's right. And, and it, you know, a lot of folks have no, no problem telling you that. And so I was kind of getting my courage up to make the calls and and to lead this phone bank with hundreds of other volunteers, started making the calls. And and of course they were not easy. And there, there were some calls where I connected with someone. There were some where, you know, they hung up on there. I had the wrong number or went to a, a voicemail. But at the end of those two and a half hours of making phone calls, I, I could feel a change had come over me. Now, look, I didn't have any less concern about our country and I was no less angry and frustrated, but, but despair, if that's the word for it, I, mm-hmm. I didn't necessarily feel that anymore. I didn't feel like I was on the verge of giving up anymore. I felt, I felt agency. Mm-hmm. I felt function. I felt purpose. Mm-hmm. I, I was not a spectator. I was not a witness. I was engaged and I was in the game. And I, I really have since come to believe that action is the antidote to despair, at least in my life. I love life. that. Say that one more time. Action mm-hmm. is the antidote to despair. That's right. And that may not be true for everyone. And um, it may not always be true for me in my life, but it is certainly the case right now. And I, mm-hmm. I think that there is such a, a, blizzard of bizarre behavior from our president so much tragedy around us i amanda yesterday i was at the funeral of a man whom i love if he's a korea war veteran who died of covid and he he died alone in his hospital bed without his family or his daughter or any friends by his side because el paso is the hardest hit city in america for for covid deaths right now Mm. and to think of this beautiful man dying alone um, and to see his wife Terry yesterday at, at the funeral at Fort Bliss National Cemetery it just 
it, it is it is so hard. And sometimes I feel like this is all happening to us mm-hmm. because we have a president who is who is who is doing this right now. But but we are not. We we are. We are not just subject to this mm-hmm. um, as as bad as bad as it is. Um, we don't just have to witness this, mm-hmm. although although we must, and we must testify to the rest of the country what is happening in places like El Paso yeah. and in Houston and, and in different places around the country. But um, we have some responsibility, and and we have some ability within that to change this. And you know, knowing that those in positions of public trust have let us down so badly being focused this year on, on changing who holds those positions of public trust has been so fulfilling. And though we fell short in Texas Mm -hmm. nationally, um, you and I were talking about this as, as we were getting ready to record nationally, there, there, there's, um, seems like there's some reward for our willingness to believe in ourselves and, and believe in the, the power of this action that we've all been taking, whether it was registering to vote or voting or making phone calls or, or in whatever capacity we challenged ourselves to take part in this election, it looks as though it is working. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that, that is, is some reward, right? Yes. But, uh, but I, I think I've learned if, if I don't stay engaged, if I don't stay active, then it's very possible that I, that I move into a place where, um, you know, I'm tempted to succumb to that despair. So that's the lesson I've learned this year. And yeah. again, I say that with a lot of humility because it may not work for everyone, but it, it certainly has worked for me. And I think that it works for a lot of people because their purpose, when they start to be in a space where they feel hopeless and they don't see purpose or feel a sense of purpose, I think that is, you know, a situation in which, you know, despair is much more likely to set in. But if you see triumph and and victories and and you can feel fulfillment through the work that you are doing to uplift and empower other people whether that's in politics civic engagement or in the volunteer activities that you do I think that's one thing I think we can continue to strive towards so I appreciate these words because I know a lot of people need to hear that not just in general but in this very moment when they're scratching their heads or wondering how did this happen or wondering where are we going or where are we going to go from here? And so I cannot thank you enough, not only just because of your leadership and not just words, but in the actions that you, you carry out and the, the inspiration that you provide to people and the fact that you are one of those few leaders that I often say that a lot of leaders, and especially in public office, they lead out of fear, right? Consequence of this and the consequence of that and the consequence. And I'm not talking about good fear. Like, you know, we don't want those unintended consequences that hurt that group of people. Not that type of fear, meaning a fear of loss of power, a fear of, uh, you know, some criticism, etc. And you are one of those leaders who... Uh, defy those odds and you lead with courage and you and you lead with honesty and I just want to thank you for being a courageous leader an authentic leader and for inspiring us all so um, I know we don't have more time I would hold you and ask you all kinds of questions but I want to be respectful of your time and thank you for the work that you do and we will be watching and we will be not being spectators but joining hands with you in the work that we have to do because I think your quote from that I take away from this is 
we and it was it's kind of a short summary of what Amy said. We've got work to do. And so we've got work to do. We'll take our moment. We'll pause for the second and then we'll get back to work. So thank you, Beto, for all that you've done to serve other people. And thank you for being on the show today. Likewise, Amanda, it, it, it's my honor to 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 do this and really a pleasure to to see you and to be with you again. And I, I will tell you, I think you live out those words in, in a way that makes all of us proud. And I think e even our conversation and the fact that it will be shared with others and will beget new conversations and new engagement um, and, and new connections, I, I think that is part of the work that we're doing. So I, I am grateful to you for what you are doing and will continue to root you on from the westernmost county in, in Texas, <laughs> only an 11 hour drive from where you are Just a on, short on drive. I-10. So it's, it's, it's no distance at all in Texas terms, but I do hope once it becomes safe for, for everyone to travel and to be together again, that we can see you in person and thank you in person for all that you've done. Until then, please be safe and be well and stay healthy. Absolutely. Well, thank you all for tuning in to this very special episode of the Edwards Empowerment Talks. And until next time, be safe. I would like to extend a special thank you to the Texas Signal for its support of our podcast.